Congratulations. You've done it. You've made your way through 1 John. Thank you for sticking with it and systematically allowing us to work through this great epistle. We have covered topics like sin and propitiation and false teaching and grace and mercy and church membership and many other topics as we we have worked our way through this book. So here are the goals that I always hope to accomplish when working through a book of the Bible. Number one, better equip you to defend the faith that God has entrusted to you. Number two, to help you understand how the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one coherent story climaxing in the person and work of Jesus. And then number three, hopefully that you will fall in love with the whole counsel of God. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So as we conclude this great epistle, you'll pick up on many of the same themes that you have picked up on throughout this book. But number four, we're going to learn, not number four, there are four things that we're going to learn today as we kind of put a bow on this book. Number one, Christians have victory in Christ. Number two, their origin is in Christ. Number three, they have understanding in Christ. And number four, truth in Christ. Victory in Christ, origin in Christ, understanding in Christ, and truth in Christ. Number one, victory in Christ. All of these points today come with the word know attached to them. K-N-O-W. Christians can know that they have victory in Christ. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, taking the context, which you should be an expert on at this point, of the whole letter into account, we know that John is not teaching that Christians will not have sin in their life. In fact, that's the main reason he wrote the epistle is that there were false teachers claiming that they did not have sin once they were in Christ. 1 John 1.8, the very first chapter of the book, If we say we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So is John contradicting himself here? No. He means that Christians will not live in unrepentant, persistent, habitual sin. There are going to be seasons of sin in the life of every believer. I've already had to confess my sin even since I've been here this morning. So we know that believers sin. What John is talking about is a perpetual, unrepentant, habitual inclination towards sin. While there might be periods of sin in our lives, eventually... A brother or sister in Christ will come face to face with that sin and turn away from it in repentance. John makes it clear in this letter that he is talking about persistent and unrepentant sin, which is not a characteristic of a follower of Christ. In fact, it would actually describe someone who has not been born again. R.C. Sproul often talks about or talked about, 
that born again is actually a redundant phrase. We often use that term to distinguish between those who are truly saved and maybe cultural Christians or nominal Christians. But he is right. The term born-again Christian is redundant because no one is a Christian unless they are born again. The only way a person can be a Christian is through the act of regeneration where a person's faith, or their heart rather, has been softened to the gospel and they respond. To that gospel call in repentance and faith. So once in Christ, you are no longer labeled by your sin, but you're labeled by the righteousness of Christ in you. This is why John can say, we can know that everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. That's why he can say that. Because if you're in Christ, you now have the righteousness of Christ in you. And you are no longer characterized or labeled primarily by your sin. But John also mentions here that Christians have protection from the evil one. The word for protection that John uses here, it's the same word that we use for keeps. So in the previous six occurrences of that verb used in 1 John, it's talking about keeping the commandments. But here, it's talking about Jesus keeping us, in other words, protecting us as his sheep. So when I say that Christians have victory in Christ, this is what I mean. That he keeps us. He protects us from the evil one. It doesn't mean we won't have sorrow. It doesn't mean we won't have affliction or trials or even sin. That is not the victory that John is talking about here. You know the classic hymn, Victory in Jesus, written in 1939. That hymn is not about avoiding hardship. It's not about avoiding sorrow or affliction or trials. Here's what it says. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. In the hymn and in 1 John, victory is solely related to what Christ has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. Christians... We have victory in Christ because of the blood he shed for us. We don't have victory in Christ because of anything that we have done. And we don't have victory in Christ in a way that would mean that we're guaranteed health and wealth in this life. Here is ultimately what victory in Christ means. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the victory that Christians have in Christ. As the true believers in 1 John were being protected against the false teachers that were spewing heretical doctrine, so we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wage war against the flesh and Satan, who will throw fiery darts at us, we have protection and victory in Christ. He will keep us till the end. Number two, our origin is in Christ. Once a person has been born again, they have new life in Christ. This is what we celebrate in the ordinance of baptism. When we take that candidate and we slam them under the water, they are symbolically being made dead to their sin, buried with Christ. And when they come out of the water, they have new life in Christ That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ today, then you are a child of the King. This is why in verse 19, John can say, We know that we are from God. So I know without a shadow of a doubt, That on December 23rd, 1985, at Brookwood Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, I was born. My birth certificate proves it. My parents, as far as I know, can confirm it. And in April of 2000, I repented of my sin, placed my faith in Christ, and I know on that day I was born again. And the Holy Spirit is the confirmation of that new birth. But in the second half of this verse, it's an incredibly sobering reminder to all of us when John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Anyone not in Christ is enslaved to their sin under the dominion of the evil one. And perhaps, not perhaps, The most scariest thought behind this idea is that most lost people don't even realize it. They don't think that they're enslaved to their sin. Most lost people, even that we know, they have jobs, they have families, they have money, they have possessions, and they have happiness. So in their minds, they think God must be pleased with them because He's obviously blessing them In all of these ways. They must be okay with God. Or else everything in their life would not go correctly for them. And this is exactly how Satan deceives. He wants lost people to be comfortable in the good things that this world offers. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, which is actually a prequel to The Reason for God, which was his first book on this topic, talks about the background beliefs that many people have about Christianity. And he says that these background beliefs ultimately determine, a lot of times, 
whether or not a person either comes to faith in Christ or remains faithful to the end. So here's an example. A background belief for many people is this. That if I'm a Christian and God loves me, there's a limit to how bad life can go for me. And by the way, that's not a biblical belief. But it is a background belief. It is an assumption that many people bring into Christianity. It's believed by many. In addition, oftentimes Christians have this background belief. That all non-believers are more selfish and unhappy than believers. That's also not biblical. All of you know lost people that are incredibly happy. Their, their lives are going great for them. And as we say from time to time, or at least I know lost people that are far better human beings than I am. So we don't need Christ to be unselfish. We don't need Christ to be good, moral people. But those are often background beliefs that people have. And what he says is, when those background beliefs are disproven, the real beliefs of Christianity become less compelling. I can give you an example of this. How many of you know people who claimed to follow Jesus, or at one time were faithfully following Jesus, and they experienced some intense period of suffering in their life or in the lives of someone close to them? And oftentimes, when that happens, people abandon their faith in God. They walk away from Christianity. There is a, a best-selling uh, New Testament scholar who teaches at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's written a lot of very popular New Testament books on why we can't trust the Gospels. He actually grew up in a very conservative Christian home, believing all the same things that we believe, until... He had a period of suffering in his life. Someone close to him got very sick or something along those lines. And now he, he doesn't believe in Christianity. So he allowed that background belief to inform his understanding of Christianity. So what I'm saying is the only way to pierce the darkness with the light of Christ, is to be very clear in what the gospel teaches and what it doesn't teach. So as best as we are able, we want to communicate the orthodox truths of Christianity and clear up any misconceptions. Like, if you come and follow Jesus, everything in your life will be grand. Because that's not true. And we have people throughout Scripture that prove that that's not true. But Satan often works through these misconceptions that people have to keep them in ignorance to the truth of the gospel. Romans 1.25 Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So, we want to understand that ultimately... If you are in Christ, your origin is in Christ, not in your circumstances. 
but what Christ has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. Number three, we have understanding in Christ. John begins verse 20 with referencing that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is not a surprise. Of course Jesus, or John would reference this because that's the whole reason he wrote the book. Because the false teachers were claiming that Jesus did not come as God in the flesh. Historically, Jesus came and he lived amongst people like you and me. No one disputes, no one disputes that Jesus was a historical figure. But many dispute that he was the Son of God, including the false teachers that John is refuting in this letter. John heard Jesus, he saw Jesus, he touched Jesus, and he can testify to his earthly ministry as the Son of God. Even laying the Bible to the side, Jewish historians from the first century, like Josephus, testify that Jesus walked and lived. Roman historians, like Tacitus, mention Jesus in their writings. So historically, we know Jesus existed. And in mentioning that Jesus had come, this verse serves as an encouragement to the Christians in John's day and to us as we joyfully anticipate the return of Christ. In addition to knowing that the Son of God has come, John says he's given us understanding. Think back to all of the occasions in the Gospels prior to Jesus' death and resurrection when Jesus is teaching his disciples and they are not able to grasp his teaching. It is only after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and then the sending of his spirit that it all begins to click. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 comes after the Holy Spirit falls on the believers. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, shortly before his death, comes after the Holy Spirit has fallen on the believers. Jesus gives us understanding through his spirit. We're not able to understand spiritual things because we are natural in our lost state. It is the spirit that awakens within us the ability to understand what it is we're reading. On the road to Emmaus, the men are literally walking next to Jesus. And they don't see him. Lost people that we know, when we open the scriptures and try to teach them what they say, they will only come to understand it if the Spirit awakens them to respond in repentance and faith. We could be the most persuasive people on the planet. And if the Holy Spirit is not at work in that individual's life, it will go right over their heads, which is why we faithfully want to pray for our lost friends and pray that the Spirit would awaken their hearts and minds to what it is that we're sharing with them. As I read the Scriptures daily, I only understand them because of Christ through His Spirit in me. 
It is His Spirit that opens up my eyes to see the beauty and the significance of what it is that I'm reading. And it is only through Christ that I'm made aware of my sinfulness before a holy God. I only have understanding in Christ. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Number four, we have truth in Christ. The understanding that we have truth in Christ actually ties in to the previous point, understanding in Christ. It is through the truth found in Christ that I know that I'm in God. If Jesus did not come to live a perfect life, die for my sin, and be raised from the dead, then not only would I not believe in God, but I would have no way of being reconciled to God. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time. Let's get out on the golf course this morning. But you're here because you do believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are true. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, and yet there is one God. In our post-Christian context in which we live, where truth is relative, we cling to the truth found in Christ. He has remained faithful and true to every promise that he has ever made. I was reminded in my Bible reading just this past week in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when Moses appeals to the people of Israel to know that Yahweh is the one true God. He says this, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today. And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. We have truth in Christ. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The philosophies, the religions, the movements of this world will come and go, but Jesus will remain. And as John concludes this epistle, he reminds all of the children that he's writing to to keep themselves free of idols. In a Greco-Roman context, idolatry 
normally was. Wooden statues or metal statues that people bowed down to in worship so that they could have an image of what God might look like. And in the context of this letter, the false teachers were guilty of idolatry because they had an inaccurate view of who Jesus was and why he came. But for us, idolatry normally manifests itself in the form of money, sex, power, and possessions. We take the good things that God has created and we make them our God. And John sends one final reminder to his children, spiritual children, to avoid idolatry. So, as we conclude this book, I want to give you three big principles, three takeaways that you can store away in your mind and heart to remember what God is teaching us in 1 John. Number one, the gospel must be clearly articulated and understood by Jesus' followers. I often say, if I were to come up to you and ask you to explain the gospel in 60 seconds or less, could you do that? One of the reasons John wrote this letter was to clarify confusion about the gospel. The false teachers were claiming that Jesus did not come as God in the flesh. They were claiming that they did not struggle with sin. That is an indication that they do not understand the gospel. Those beliefs are a denial of the truth of the gospel. So number one, the gospel must be clearly articulated and understood by Jesus' followers. Number two, Love for God detached from love for neighbor is not Christianity. Whether that be your brothers and sisters in Christ or lost people, love for God detached from love for neighbor is not Christianity. The false teachers to which John was refuting were claiming all of this new knowledge about God But they were pulling away the Christians from the bride of Christ to come and join their team. So they claimed to love God, but by pulling the true Christians away from the church, they showed that they did not actually love their brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have love for God, but you don't have love for His church, then repent of that sin. And if you have love for God, but not love for your neighbor, lost or saved, then repent of that sin. Love for God detached from love for neighbor is not Christianity. Number three, beware of false teaching. False teaching is alive and well today, just like it was in John's day. And the way to combat false teaching is to know the Bible. And stay connected to a church that faithfully teaches God's word. God forbid, but if at some point, for whatever reason, I stop teaching the truth of the Bible, you should fire me immediately. We have in our world today, you need to know this, more access to biblical content than at any other point in the history of the entire world. 
But at the same time, that means that we also have access to very, very bad Bible teaching. False gospel teaching. Heretical teaching. Like what John is refuting in this letter. So, beware of false teaching. May God continue to use this book to encourage you and spur you on to faithfulness as you follow him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the boldness and the clarity with which John wrote this great letter. And may we not just have all this knowledge about this letter, but may it be used in our hearts to transform us and to make us more into your image. Help us to faithfully know what it is we believe and to cling to the truth of the gospel. We love you and we thank you for the revelation of yourself through your word that we can read and study every week. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.